year of the Vitamix blended smoothie. <laughs> Not the Vitamix, the blend, the, the smoothie specifically. Yeah, the Vitamix blended smoothie. Hello, welcome to Infinite Cast. Hello. We're back. Indeed. Um, Molly gave away the game a little bit, uh, but my prediction is correct. was correct that we had had too much uh, silly pleasantness in this book and we're due for something uh, uh, gross and horrifying. Too many, too many kids uh, t- tottering around in the tunnels under ETA, having the time of their lives, uh, tickling no, each other's necks and giggling. Not enough some sad adult taking so many drugs that they shit themselves and then lie sleeping in the crusted shit of their uh, expectorations. Yeah, not enough. Definitely not enough. I might take some, uh, you know, extra time to pause between paragraphs. Uh, You know, normally I have an iced coffee when we do this and I'll slip if you you start talking, Um, but otherwise I don't try to interrupt the narrative, but we just have the most delicious smoothie that we made today. Uh, we're in, we're into smoothie lifestyle. Yeah, uh, we're smoothie pilled. And I just you know I don't want it to get it, let it get all melted and then it's just a uh, fruit soup. So uh, sorry for the pauses, but it's just so good. Breakfast of champions: smoothie and leftover nachos. Yeah, it's a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. A little high, a little low. It's all it's all a salad at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> what are nachos but a chip salad? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Any, anything from you before we get started? I don't think so. Uh, we have listener mail, mm. or rather listener DMs that mm-hmm. we can read at the end. Mm-hmm. Some good ones this week. Yes. Excellent work, listeners. Uh, keep up the standards set by these two, uh, these two <laughs> DMs, uh, which we'll get to. All right, All right go let's for get it. into it. 14th November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. The Mano War Grill on Prospect. Maddie sat in the hot clatter. Who the, the fuck is Maddie? I'm going to tell you. We're like 700 pages into this book. You can't be introducing new characters. I'm. So, I, it's not up to me. Maddie, Maddie come on, get, come the fuck on. Sat in the hot clatter of the Portuguese restaurant with his hands in his lap, looking at nothing. A waiter brought his soup. The waiter had bits of either bloodstain or soup on his apron, and for no discernible reason, wore a fez. Maddie ate his soup without once slurping. He'd been the neat eater in the family. Maddie Pemulus ah, was, okay. was a prostitute, and today he was 23. Okay. The Man o' War Grill is on Prospect Street in Cambridge, and its front windows overlook the heavy foot traffic between Inman and Central Squares. As Maddie waited for his soup, he'd seen across the restaurant and out the front's glass a bag lady-type older female in several clothing layers, lift her skirts and lower herself to the pavement and move her scaggly old bowels right there in full view of passers-by and diners both, then gather all her plastic shopping bags together and walk stolidly out of view. The pile of bowel movements sat there on the pavement, steaming slightly. Maddie'd heard the college kids at the next table say they didn't know whether to be totally illed or totally awed. A big rangy kid with a big sharp face and tight short hair and a smile and a shaved twice jaw since he was 14, now balding smoothly back from a high clear forehead. A permanent smile that always seemed like he was trying not to but just couldn't help it. His da always formally saying to wipe it off. Inman Square, Little Lisbon, the soup has bits of calamari that make the muscles in his face flex, chewing. Now two Brazilians in bell-bottoms and tall shoes along the sidewalk across the window over the diner's heads. What might be a brewing street fight? 
one walking forward and one walking backward, facing off as they move, each missing the dollop of bowel movement on the walk, speaking high-volume street Portuguese muffled by windows and hot clatter, but each looking around and then pointing at his own chest like, you saying this shit to me? Then the forward man's sudden charge, carrying them both past the window's right frame. Have we established that Little Portugal is indeed an area of Boston? I actually hadn't checked. I think we, I thought we discussed this previously. Mm. Uh, Maddie's dad come over on a boat from Louth in Leinster in 1989. Maddie had been three or four. Dodd worked on the Southie docks, coiling lengths of rope as big around as phone poles into tall cones, and had died when Maddie was 17 of pancreatic complaints. Maddie looked up from the roll he was dipping in the soup and saw two underweight interracial girls moving across the window, one an an N-word, neither even looking at the shit everyone's stepping around, and then a few seconds behind them, poor Tony Krause. Oh, hey who, because of the trousers and cap, Maddie didn't even recognize as poor Tony Krause until he'd looked back down and then up again. Poor Tony Krause looked god-awful, sucked out, hollow-eyed, past ill, grave-ready, his face's skin the greenish-white of extreme-depth marine life, looking less alive than undead, identifiable as poor poor old poor Tony, only by the boa and red leather coat and the curtain way, the, sorry, the certain way he held his hand to his throat's hollow as he walked. That way Equus Reese always said always reminded him of black and white era starlets descending curved stairs into some black tie function. Krauss never so much walking as making an infinite series of grand entrances into pocket after pocket of space. A queenly hauteur, now both sickening and awesome, given Krauss's spectral mien, passing across the grill's window, his eyes either on or looking right through the two skinny girls plodding ahead of him, following them out of the window's right-hand side. His dad begun fucking Maddie up the ass when Maddie was 10. A fook in taboom. <laughs> God. Maddie had complete recall of the whole thing. He'd seen sometimes where persons that had unpleasant things happen to them as children blocked the unpleasantness out in their mentality as adults and forgot it. Not so with Maddie Pemulus. He remembered every inch and pimple of every single time. His father outside the little room Matt and Mickey slept in late at night the cat's eye sliver of lit hallway through the crack in the door Dodd opened, the door on well-oiled hinges opening with the implacable slowness of a rising moon, Dodd's shadow lengthening across the floor, and then the man his very self weaving in behind it, crossing the moonlit floor in darned socks and that smell about him that later Maddie'd know was malt liquor, but that at that age he and Mickey called something else when they smelled it. Maddie lay and pretended to sleep, he didn't know why tonight he pretended not to know the man was there. He was afraid. Even the first time. Mickey just five. All the times were the same. Daw drunk, tacking across the bedroom floor, a certain stealth, managing somehow never to break his neck on the toy trucks and tiny cars scattered on the floor, left there that first time by accident. Sitting on the edge of the bed so his weight changed the bed's angle. A big man smelling of tobacco and something else, his breath always audible when drunk sitting on the edge of the bed, shaking Maddie awake to the point where Maddie'd have to pretend to wake up, asking if he'd been asleep, sleeping there, was he? Tenderness, caresses that were somehow just over the line from true ethnic Irish fatherly affection, the emotional largesse of a man without a green card who daily broke his back for his family's food. Caresses that were in some vague way just over the line from that and from the emotional largesse of something else drunk when all the rules of mood were suspended and you never knew from minute to minute whether you were to be kissed or hit 
Impossible to say how or even know how they were just over those lines, but they were the caresses. Tenderness, caresses, low, soft, oversweet, hot, bad breath, soft apologies for some flash of savagery or discipline from the day. A way of cupping the pillow-warm cheek and jaw in the hollow of the hand, the huge pinky finger tracing the hollow between throat and jaw. Maddie'd shrink away. Shy are we, son? Scared are we? Maddie'd shrink away even after he knew the shrinking fear was part of what brought it on, for Dodd get angry. Who are we scared of then? Then who are we, a son, to be scared so of our own da, as if the da that bro- broke his dro- broke daily his back were nothing more than a... Can't a da show his son some love without being taken for a... As if Maddie could lie here with his food inside him under bedding he'd paid for and think his da were no better than a... Is it a you're fucking scared of then? You'd think a da what comes in to speak to his son and holds him as a da has not on his mind but a fook? As if the son were some $40 whore off the docks? As if the da were a, is that what you take me for? Is that what you take me for then? Maddie shrinking back into a flattening pillow the da paid for, the springs of the convertible bed singing with his fear. He shook. Why then so I've a mind to give you just what you're been, what, just what you're thinking to fear. Take me for. Maddie knew early on that his being afraid fueled the thing somehow, made his da want to. He was unable not to be afraid. He tried and tried, cursed himself for a coward and deserving, all but calling his father a... It was years before he snapped to the fact that his dad have fucked him into boom, no matter what he'd done, that the event was laid out before the first slim line of Doraline broadened and whatever Maddie'd felt or betrayed made no difference. An advantage to not blocking it out is you can snap to things later with mature perspective. You can come to see no sone on the planet could in any way ask for that regardless. Sown. <laughs> at a certain later age. I uh, just want to pause to say that this tennis player that we are watching is named Fuxovix. <laughs> you think it's Fuxovix? No, it's, it's Fuxovix. Mm. Let me uh, 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 interrupt this uh, child rape scene with a little bit of lever- levity. I think, my sis- I think this is my sister. My sister had a job <laughs> working at her college uh, calling alumni and asking for donations. Uh-huh. A popular kind of white collar job yes, for uh, uh, very students. Yes, very familiar, yeah. And she, you, I, you get the the list of names and you dial it and yeah. you, you know, say who to call it. And she had uh, someone who was <laughs> Mr. F F U C H S, which I believe would be Fuchs. Yes. Uh, but she just cu- she called the number and says, "Hello, is this Mr. Fox?" And just like the guy just immediately hung up. I just love, I just love that. Who, who would tell her that it was Fuchs? I wouldn't know in college. I've never met a Fuchs before. <laughs> Mr. Fox. Hi, hi. This is Kelly from Blah University. Can I? Is this Mr. Mr. Fox? Maybe it could also be Futches. <laughs> I, th- I think it was. It was either her or her friend. It's one of those uh, little anecdotes that is passed into uh, mm-hmm. myth in a way. Mr. Fox. Anyway, back to uh, back to back the, text. To the real Mr. Back to the Fox. Real Mr. Fox. At a certain later age, he started lying there when his daw shook him and pretended to sleep on, even when the shakes got to where his teeth clacked together in a mouth that wore the slight smile Maddie decided truly sleeping people's faces always wore. The harder his father shook him, the tighter Maddie'd shut his eyes, and the more set the slight smile and the louder the rasps of the cartoon snores he alternated uh, with exhaled whistles. Mickey over in the cot by the window, always silent as a tomb on his side, face to the wall and hidden. Never a word between them about anything more than the chances of being kissed versus hit. 
Finally, Dodd grabbed both his shoulders and flipped him over with a sound of disgust and frustration. Maddie thought just the smell of fear was maybe enough to deserve it until later on he got some mature perspective. He remembered the oval sound of the cap coming off the jar of petroleum jelly, that special stone-in-pond plop of a Vaseline cap, not childproof even in an era of childproof caps. Hearing his dog muttering as he applied it to himself, feeling the ice-cold, awful finger between him as his dog smeared the stuff roughly around Maddie's rosebud, his dark star. It was only the mature perspective of years and experience that let Maddie find something to be thankful for, that the Dodd at least used a lube. The origins of the big man's clear familiarity with the stuff and its nighttime use, not even adult perspective could illuminate, let Maddie snap to, still now at 23. One hears, say, cirrhosis and acute pancreatitis and thinks of the subject clutching his middle like an old film's gut-shot actor and slumping quietly over to eternal rest with lids shut and face composed. Maddie's dad died choking on aspirated blood, a veritable fountain of the darkest possible blood. Maddie coated a spray paint russet as he held the man's yellow wrists and mom lumbered off down the ward in search of a crash cart team particles aspirated so terribly fine like almost atomized so that they hung in the air like the air itself over the cribbed bed as the man expired cat yellow uh, cat yellow eyes wide open and face screwed into the very most god-awful rictusized grin of pain his last thoughts if any unknowable maddie still toasted the man's final memory with his first shot whenever he indulged which takes us to end note 278 where was Mrs. Pemulus all this time late at night with dear old Da P shaking Maddie awake until his teeth rattled and little Mickey curled up against the far wall, shell breathing, silent as death, is what I'd want to know. Who's I? Oh, God, who can say? Ugh. Or is that the end of that segment? That's the end of that segment. Well, that's all, folks. Oh, God. <laughs> now let's move on. He's just, yeah, he just loves rubbing your nose in something gross and it's horrifying. Some, it's every, a really like, horrifying 60, shit. 80 pages. Yeah. Sorry, someone just. Oh, is that, is that Andre? Is that Andre Agassi? Young Andre? This is an old one. Wait, this might be Andre when he was wearing the wig. Uh, he started losing his hair, but his hair was like his whole thing. Uh, yeah, so he, he had started that wearing long, a wig. wild blonde hair. Yeah, 92. Boris Becker, Andre Agassi, Andre Agassi Wimbledon. Wimbledon 92. Does he win this? Spoiler alert! He's not, um, he's not wearing the jorts though, so this isn't the the er, the actual classic Andre mm, look. Mm. Uh, well, we should do more more today, please. Right? Yes, uh, hopefully, let, hopefully something a little less horrifying. Yeah. Uh, what what I'm confused there's are, uh, is he calling him Mickey Pemulus? Is now that must, he, that's Michael, it's right? Mikey. Yeah. So I wonder if he got got a new name when he went to the. Uh, he reinvented went himself when he went to the tennis academy. Yeah. No wonder Michael is such a, a freak and a scammer. Yeah. Eleventh <laughs> uh, November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. So that's three days earlier. First thing after supper, Hal drops around to Stitt's room off the Comad lobby to go through the motions of getting some input on just what had gone so terribly wrong against Stice. Also to maybe get some kind of bead on why he had to play the darkness publicly in the first place, so close to the Whataburger. I.e. like what the exhibition might have signified. This endless tension among ETAs about how the coaches are seeing you, gauging your progress. Is your stock going up or down? But A. Delint's the only one in there, working on some sort of oversized spreadsheetish chart, lying prone and shirtless on the bare floor with his chin in his hand and a pungent magic marker. And it says, Stitt has gone off on the cycle somewhere after confections, but to sit down, presumably meaning in a chair. 
So Hal subjected to several minutes of Delin's take on the match, complete with stats out of the pro-rector's head. Delin's back is pale and constellated with red pits of old pimples, though the back's nothing compared to Strzok's or Shaw's back. There's a cane chair and a wood chair. Delin's liquid crystal laptop screen pulses grayly on the floor next to him. Stitt's room's overlit, and there's no dust anywhere, not even in the very corners. Stitt's sound system's lights are on, but nothing's playing. Neither Hal nor Delint mentions Oren's profiler's presence in the match's stands, nor the big lady's long interchange with Poterncore. Oh. Yes? I remember the thing that we were supposed to bring up. What? Which is we watched Tango oh, and yes, Cash. Oh, yes, yes. We watched the movie Tango and Cash, and there's a part in that in which, um, what's his name? Not, uh... Mm, or a mouthful of movie. Um, not Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is uh, dressed as a uh, a sexy lady to evade detection and escape with uh, Terry Hatcher out of a nightclub. Uh, and Kurt Russell as a lady in Tango and Cash is the vibe of Helen Steepley. Of Helen Steepley. Yeah, that's what, what I would imagine. Smaller. Yes. Imagine like a bigger guy, but the same vibe of just being like. Yes. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's going on there? Yes. Yes. Anyway, where did I go? Uh, neither Hal nor Delint mentions Oren's profiler's presence in the match's stands, uh, nor the big lady's long interchange with Potrincourt, which had been conspicuous. Stice's and Wayne's names are at the top of the huge chart on the floor, but Hal's name isn't. Hal says he can't tell whether he'd made some sort of basic tactical error or whether he just wasn't quite up to snuff this afternoon or what. You just never quite occurred out there, kid, Delint apprises him. He has regressed certain figures to back this up, this non-occurrence. His choice of words chills Hal to the root. After which, during what's supposed to be mandatory PM study period, and despite the three chapters of board's prep his board's prep schedule calls for, Hal sits alone up in viewing room six, the bad leg out along the couch in front of him, flexing the bad ankle idly, holding the other leg's knee to his chest, squeezing a ball but with the hand he doesn't play with, chewing Kodiak and spitting directly into an unlined wastebasket, his expression neutral, watching some cartridges of his late father's entertainments. Anyone else looking at him in there tonight would call Hal depressed. He watches several cartridges all in a row. He watches the American Century as seen through a brick and <laughs> prenuptial engagement or a prenuptial agreement of Hemet and Hal and then part of valuable coupon has been removed, which is maddening because it's a all a monologue from some bespectacled, sorry, some bespectacled little contemporary of Miles Penn and Heath Pearson, who was almost as ubiquitous as Reet and Bain in himself's work, but whose name right now Hal can't for the life of him recall. He watches part of Death in Scarsdale and Union of Publicly Hidden in Lynn and Various Small Flames and Kinds of Pain. The viewing room has insulated paneling behind the wallpaper and is essentially soundproof. Hal watches half of the Medusa versus Odalisk thing, but takes it out abruptly when people in the audience start getting turned to stone. Hal tortures himself by imagining swarthy, leering types threatening to torture various loved ones if Hal can't come up with the name of the kid in Valuable Coupon and Low Temperature Civics and wave bye-bye to the bureaucrat. <laughs> there are two cartridges on VR6s. Make me want to go back and re re-read, reread the, the filmography. filmography yeah. There are two cartridges on VR6's glass shelves of himself getting interviewed in various arty community access cable type forums, which Hal declines to watch. The light's slight flicker and subtle change in the pressure of the room is from the ETA furnaces kicking on way down in the tunnels below Comad. 
Hal shifts uneasily on the couch, spitting into the waste can. The very faint smell of burnt dust is also from the furnace. A minor short didactic one Hal likes and runs twice in a row is waved bye-bye to the bureaucrat. A bureaucrat in some kind of sterile, fluorescent-lit office complex is a fantastically efficient worker when awake, but he has this terrible problem waking up in the a.m. and is consistently late to work, which in a bureaucracy is idiosyncratic and disorderly and wholly unacceptable. And we see this bureaucrat getting called into a supervisor's pebbled glass cubicle, and the supervisor, who wears a severely dated leisure suit with his shirt collar flaring out on either side of its rust-colored lapels, tells the bureaucrat that he's a good worker and a fine man, but that this chronic tardiness in the AM is simply not going to fly. And if it happens one more time, the bureaucrat is going to have to find another fluorescent-lit office complex to work in. It is no accident that in a bureaucracy, getting filed is called termination, as in ontological erasure, (laughs) and the bureaucrat leaves his supervisor's cubicle duly shaken. That night, he and his wife go through their Bauhaus condominium, collecting every alarm clock they own, each one of which is electric and digital and extremely precise. I wish we lived in a Bauhaus condominium. (laughs) And they festoon their bedroom with them. So there are like a dozen timepieces with their digital alarms all set for uh, 06-15 hours. But that night, there's a power failure, and all the clocks lose an hour or just sit there blinking O-O-O-H over and over. And the bureaucrat uh, still oversleeps the next a.m. He wakes late, lies there for a moment, staring at a blinking O-O-O-O. He shrieks, clutches his head, throws on wrinkled clothes, ties his shoes in the elevator, shaves in the car, blasting through red lights on the way to the commuter rail. The 0816 train to the city pulls into the station's lower level just as the crazed bureaucrat's car screeches into the station's parking lot, and the bureaucrat can see the top of the train sitting there idling from across the open lot. This is the very last temporally feasible train. If the bureaucrat misses this train, he'll be late again and terminated. He hauls into a handicapped spot and leaves the car there at a crazy angle, vaults the turnstile, and takes the stairs down to the platform seven at a time, sweaty and bug-eyed. People scream and dive out of his way. As he careers down the long stairway, he keeps his crazy, crazed eyes on the open doors of the 0816 train, willing them to stay open just a little longer. Finally, filmed in a glacial slow-mo, the bureaucrat leaps from the seventh to the bottom step and lunges towards the train's open doors, and right in mid-lunge, smashes headlong into an earnest-faced little kid with thick glasses and a bow tie and those nerdy little (laughs) schoolboy shorts who's tottering along the platform under a tall armful of carefully wrapped packages. Kerwam, they collide. Bureaucrat and kid both stagger back from the impact. The kid's packages go flying all over the place. The kid recovers his balance and stands there stunned, glasses and bow tie askew. Which takes us to end note... uh, 279. The kids, the former ETA whose name keeps eluding and torturing Hal, who hasn't gone over 24 hours without getting high in secret for well over a year and doesn't feel very good at all and finds the kids' (laughs) names' elusiveness infuriating. Maybe we can look it up in the filmography afterwards. Yes. Back to the text. The bureaucrat looks frantically from the kid to the litter of packages to the kid to the train's doors, which are still open. The train thrums. Its interior is fluorescent lit and filled with employed, ontologically secure bureaucrats. You can hear the station's PA announcer saying something tinny and garbled about departure. The stream of platform foot traffic opens around the bureaucrat and the stunned boy and the litter of packages. 
Ogilvy once lectured for a whole period on this kid's character as an instance of the difference between an antagonist and a deuteragonist in moral <laughs> drama. Are you familiar with this film, schoolboy? De- deuter- 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 like like Deuteronomy. De- deuteragonist. Do you? No, I am not not familiar with that. That seems more of a literary term. Uh, he'd mentioned the child actor's name over and over. Hal tries whacking himself just over the right eye several times to dislodge the name. The film's bureaucrats' buggy eyes keep going back and forth between the train's open doors and the little kid who's looking steadily up at him, almost studious, his eyes big and liquid behind the lenses. Hal doesn't remember who played the bureaucrat either, but it's the kid's name that's driving him bats. The bureaucrats leaning away... Maybe it's Paul Anthony Heaven. P.A. Heaven. Uh... The bureaucrats leaning away, inclined way over toward the train doors, as if his very cells were being pulled that way. But he keeps looking at the kid, the gifts, struggling with himself. It's a clear internal conflict moment, one of himself's films very few. (laughs) The bureaucrats' eyes suddenly recede back into their normal places in his sockets. He turns from the fluorescent doors and bends to the kid and asks if he's okay and says it'll all be okay. He cleans the kid's spectacles with his pocket handkerchief, picks the kid's packages up, about halfway through the packages, the PA issues something final, and the train's doors close with a pressurized hiss. The bureaucrat gently loads the kid back up with packages, neatens them. The train pulls out. The bureaucrat watches the train pull out, expressionless. It's anybody's guess what he's thinking. He straightens the kid's bow tie, kneeling down the way adults do when they're ministering to a child, and tells him he's sorry about the impact and that it's okay. He turns to go. The platform's mostly empty now. Now the strange moment. The kid cranes his neck around the packages and looks up at the guy as he starts to walk away. Mister, the kid says, are you Jesus? (laughs) Don't I wish, the ex-bureaucrat says over his shoulder, walking away as the kid shifts the packages and frees one little hand to wave by at the guy's top coat's back as the camera, revealed now as mounted on the uh, 0816's rear, uh, recedes from the platform and picks up speed. Wave bye-bye to the bureaucrat remains Mario's favorite of all their late father's entertainments, possibly because of its unhip earnestness. Though to Mario, he always maintains it's basically goo. See, Hal secretly likes, likes it too, the cartridge, and likes to project himself imaginatively into the ex-bureaucrat's character on the leisurely drive home toward ontological erasure. As a kind of weird self-punishment, Hal also plans to subject himself to the horrific fun with teeth and baby <laughs> pictures of famous dictators, then <laughs> finally to one of himself's posthumous hits, a cartridge called Blood Sister, One Tough Nun, that he'd always found kind of gratuitously nasty and overwrought, but which Hal has no idea that this piece of entertainment actually germinated out of James O. and Condense's one brief and unpleasant experience with Boston AA in the BS mid-90s, when himself lasted two and a half months and then drifted gradually away, turned off by the simplistic God stuff and covert dogma. Bob Somebody... Ho- <laughs> Yes. Uh, way bye bye to the bureaucrat would make a good concept for a music video for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, Michael Schur wants to hook back up with the uh, the Decemberists, the Decemberists or yeah. uh, some other indie band. Yeah. Bob Hopeless Hal <laughs> spits way more than is his norm now, and also likes having the waste can right nearby in case that he might throw up. That afternoon, he'd had zilch in the way of a kinesthetic sense. He couldn't feel the ball on his stick. His nausea had nothing to do with watching his father's cartridges. For the last year, his arm's been an extension of his mind and the stick an extension of the arm, acutely sensitive. Each of the cartridges is a carefully labeled black diskette 
They're all signed neatly out on the clipboard by the egg-shaped glass bookshelf and are loaded in the queuing slots and waiting to drop in order and be digitally decoded. What do you think? Uh, we're 27. This, this is a fine place to stop. Mm-hmm. Enough child rape from one day? Yes. Great. We'll leave uh, Tony Krause for uh, next time. Oh, does it pick back up with Tony Krause? Sure does. Well, I'm sure something horrifying is happening to him. As Always. Well. <laughs> they don't call him poor Tony for another. Ooh, wow, the that line judge just got thwacked in the head. <laughs> wow, and he's just, now he's just sitting there. He's yeah. like, "Yep, uh, that's the r- rules of the game." There's something I find unsettling about the um, slave-like servility of the ball boys and line judges and of the um, mm. of professional tennis matches. Yes. It's you all know how they're all British. like, yeah, they're all like, the, they have the set poses with their arms tucked behind them, and they're like crouched and ready to go. You gotta have that that uh pomp and circum circum pomp and stance. Circum pomp and stance. Wait, what did we just watch? That was there. Somebody said circum pomp and stance. Shit! Oh god, what is wrong with me? We just was it Australia? It. I don't think so. I don't think it was Australia. Baz Luhrmann's Australia, which we did watch. <laughs> we watched last night. What a picture. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, well, we don't need to get into. We, don't, we don't, honestly, we don't need to say anything about yeah. it. Uh, it's certainly not you'll, a film that hear, James O. and Condensa would have made. Uh, you'll hear more of our thoughts on Baz Luhrmann in a, in a different upcoming podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know the 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 yeah that seeing that line judge just get thwacked in the head with a tennis ball and not move and in fact just sit there and be like, yes, this is good. Yes, I actually I love when that happens. Yes. Um, I wish it would happen more. What do you, I don't know. What I mean, do you make with the fascina- about the fascination with child sexual assault in this? It's not great, right? I mean, like, it's, it's one well, of mean, those. It's like, I, I'm, I'm certain that it can have, like, literary story value, but it, I don't know. There, there's something about it that does just seem like he feels like he needs to break up the, the, the whimsy uh, with, mm. with, like, yeah, I mean, I've said the, this word like 30 times already today, but it's with something just like debased and horrifying. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I think he's trying to give, he's trying to give context for, I mean, okay. There was an essay about this a while ago about uh, the trauma plot. Do you remember this? Uh, I don't know if I remember this specific one, but I'm sure I could uh, guess what it says it's, based it's just on the idea discourse. being that someone's characterization is oh uh directly related to um uh b- bad shit that has happened in yes. their in their past or over their storyline uh up, up to and including sexual assault and i feel like under the that script i if i'm remembering correctly the essay refers to like game of thrones for example yes um, the gambo the gambo and you know lots of uh I don't know, it's obviously mostly women uh, that this is happening to. And actually, uh, maybe there is something there is that he's showing the uh, depth and breadth of the ways people can be sexually assaulted, including (laughs) boys of their fathers. Like, I mean, that's not some that's never in game. Well, yes, there is there is male sexual assault in Game of Thrones, uh, but not for kids. Uh, Anyway, this is all to say by today's standards, I think people would probably pick this shit out and be like this is it's a it's a little what's the deal it's a little unhip i would say in in terms of things but Mm -hmm. uh yeah that i mean and the the kind of implication that every i don't know yeah that that bad situations uh abuse like substance abuse whatever Mm -hmm. are all like directly linked or, or explainable by some kind of 
trauma not just even in the casual trauma sense but like acute deep like unique uh, like does not happen to everybody. Yeah, trauma. I mean, yeah, you have everything from just like run of the mill. Uh, it okay. I I'm trying to piece this out because yeah, so substance abuse is what all this is linked to. Is that like yeah. Maddie Pemulus's da was a drunk and he died yes. of a drunk. And disease. I'm sure if we will hear more about Maddie, we will find out that he has some kind of substance abuse problem later. I mean, everybody yeah. in in this basically has some kind of addiction. Yes. Uh, I mean, at the end of that paragraph, it was like he always toasts to his da uh, on his first shot w- when he partakes, which yeah. I don't know if that's supposed to be something sarcastic about how often he drinks or not. Uh, anyway, so you have stuff like that. You have like the woman who smoked crack all through her pregnancy and then gave gave birth to like a dead dead baby shaped type thing and then carried it around. Oh God, I, I didn't even remember that. You've got the um, girl whose sister um, was like a very like deformed little girl who yes, was diddled by yes, her, her dad, yep. uh, Raquel Welch. Um, so you've got all these things that are very lurid and it seems like in some ways he's kind of taking, there, there's a lot of, uh, I want to say he's like taking pleasure in the details because that seems wrong too. But like, it is though. It is like it's so exaggerated. But so is everything. Like everything, everything in this book is hyper exaggerated. Lurid, lurid and puerile is is I feel like the right the the right tact on it. Even it's like, like yeah, yeah, oh, like look this, how gross this is. Just, and at the end, even like his, that his dad's death, like he's like spraying Wait, blood in the take air. That, she, that he killed his dad. Uh no, I think he I think he just died in a died of a totally of natural like bl- blood <laughs> exhalation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he died of a you know as a you do. alcoholic uh uh you know blood explosion. Yeah. yeah, I mean so it's but everything in this book, even like Marlon Bain, who recently got interviewed by mail by Hugh slash Helen Steeply say like his parents just got like decapitated oh, in, yes. a, in a traffic <laughs> the fucking helicopter. Dog thing, yeah. The dog being dragged behind the thing. Like everything is c- cartoonishly it's, it's violent. A very, it's, it's a, it's a whole, it's a very gross book, which I think is not necessarily something you would get again, going back to the original premise of this podcast from the discourse. You would think yeah. that it's like dry and intellectual and philosophical. And really it's, it's like here's, here's six pages about a dog getting dragged into a nubbin yeah. behind a car yeah it's literally yeah it's like a you know someone literally getting hit in the head with a frying pan and then birds and stars flying yeah exactly 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 uh and so like that i think that the reason that this passage maybe grossed us out a little more is that it wasn't quite it wasn't cartoonish it was like realistic yeah. and like gross like it was like it was na- yeah. it, it evoked what you're supposed to feel when you hear something like it's that, which is disgust, nasty, and uh, like ho- horror and uh, pity for this child. Yeah. Anyway, I it's uh, I don't it's I also I don't know. <laughs> that's a that's a lot of words to say. I I don't I also don't know how to how to deal with it. Oh, the, t- connecting it to substance abuse, that it is. I think what David Foster Wallace is trying to say is that for people who use substances to the point where they lose their humanity, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that it, if you get drunk, you're going to diddle a kid. That's not how that works. But 
was uh, Maddie's dad diddled? I don't know, maybe when he was in Ireland by some fucked up priest or something? Maybe. Is you're supposed to like draw, maybe this is just me, you you draw in the family tree and you're like, this had to come from somewhere. Yeah. This didn't come from anywhere. And then what he was doing with alcohol both numbs his own pain and then brings it out uh, and g- creates the trauma all over again for a new generation. And the common thread is the alcohol. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess this is the point of literature in a book. It's <laughs> like you have to draw your own conclusions. I, I just can't shake the feeling that it's like, I mean, again, it's kind of everything here is like, does this go somewhere or lead to something? Or is it just like, anyway, here's a gross thing. Well, you know, it's Ma- it's Maddie's, uh, it's it's Mike Mike Pimulis's brother's a brother. Like, yeah. Uh, it's Mike. He's at a fancy tennis school. It's his meal ticket out of there. He takes. Uh, he's a very smart guy. Takes his academics very seriously, but he's also got that streak that gets him in trouble, and so yeah. he's constantly on the verge of maybe getting kicked out. If he gets kicked out, where is he gonna fucking go? The street, man. Yeah, that's true. Back to boss is his brothers in Cambridge. Anyway, that, that's that little... that's the specter of uh yeah. of what Mike. Pamulus's life could be oh, if he wasn't just so freaking zany and and uh, such a prankster. Well, such he's a, already a hustler, so maybe he'd do well on the streets. Oh God! I mean, he's monitor. already he hustles the kids. He's yeah. playing like three card Monty with them and stuff. Andre Agassi is so cool. His one dangling cross earring. Mm. Anyway, do you want to do some listener mail? Mm-hmm. Do you want me to go first? Or do you want you to do? You go first. Okay. Uh, this is a DM from Gambling Expert. Mm-mm. Thank you, Gambling Expert, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and this is R E R discussion of games and sport yes. from last week. Uh, and I hope you don't mind if I, uh, read this out all out loud gambling expert, uh, R E infinite cast parentheses, sports, sports, basketball, sports, wiener dog. You guys listen to the Viagra boys yet? You should, you should. Uh, no theme. Anyway, this is that's an aside. This is the actual message. Yeah. Long time listener, been stewing on this one since 2020. I used to organize and run competitive Smash Brothers melee tournaments, and uh, the book people usually recommend if you're getting into competitive Smash Brothers melee is actually the Inner Game of Tennis. Uh-huh. Although I'm still socially part of my local scene, I'm now uh, of the opinion that the years of dedication and practice needed to become very good at something competitively are not really worth it when it comes to video games. Imagine all the mental strife the tennis boys go through, but also, <laughs> but also, it actively makes you less cool, less attractive, <laughs> less ath- athletic. Uh, I've seen people really break down after losses. I've seen people damage other people's property and threaten violence after losses. Not worth it for Super Smash Bros. I also think there's something to be said about esports with, instead of the competition becoming entertainment, the opposite occurs where something intended as entertainment becomes competition. Mm-hmm. Much to think about. Much to think about. Uh, thank you for the great uh, thoughts, gambling expert, because that truly is much to think about. Uh, <laughs> and I do think that makes me think that there is some kind of like great work of fiction to be written about competitive sports. You know? uh, esports, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. E- yeah. E-spo- esports, yeah. Uh, gaming and stuff. Uh, because yeah, I, I do think that becoming obsessed about something that so involves, uh, you know, losing yourself into yeah, a, a digital entertainment is is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and you know, but it's also like as as he says, what if it may involving yourself so dedicating yourself so thoroughly to something that makes you less cool, less athletic, less attractive? Yeah. But it's also like, uh. You know, 
who care who care the only reason that we associate those positive values to sports is because those are the things that we associate those positive it's like tautological you know yeah, yeah. i think the practitioners of esports would be like no melee is just as cool as tennis well, the only reason we think tennis is cool is because it's on tv you know yeah but also, I mean, isn't there the other element of esports is that it could theoretically make you rich depending on what type of thing you yeah, play? Yeah, there's a lot of money in it right now. Yeah. So that and that then you get and that's then you just get success. bitches. Yes. <laughs> yeah, then that's just regular style success. Yes. Uh first, yeah, you, first you do get the esports, then you get the money, then you get the women. You do you that's make you make say. a decent amount of money as a tennis like do don't some people win like a million dollars? I mean, as with all these things, and I think that that's what he's getting at with the, um, you know, the big show stuff in mm-hmm. this is like, yes, if you are like one of the top 0.1% of tennis guys, like maybe what, how many of them are there at any given moment? 50 in the world? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the reason they call it the open is that I think theoretically anyone can do it if they are, if they're good enough to like get in but we've been watching these tennis highlights the entire time we've been doing these uh podcasts and how many names have you seen in total yeah like a uh, like, Go- like 10 or like 10 or something yeah going back through like it's 30 same? years Sphere, it's like 50 Sverev, guys Tsitsipas, uh yeah. uh you know yeah. uh Djokovic uh yeah. Federer it's basically it Those yeah. are like the four guys they're, they're like <laughs> no. yeah they're like 20 I'm, guys uh, and i'm sure there are 20,000 people trying to be tennis guys if you win the u.s open uh, in 2019 the the winner got uh almost four million dollars wow for like what two hours of <laughs> reading this fucking big book about tennis and i'm like how long does a tennis game last two hours uh and i'm sure it's the same with melee probably even mm-hmm. more competitive where they're probably like 20 guys on earth who can make big money playing any given video game yeah and then you know two hundred thousand two million guys thinking maybe Think i that. could be maybe one I of those 20, 20, uh, 20 the, guys the other aspect uh to like bring up in the uh, context of the video game thing is like it is social yeah and it is uh that like that's part of it too is that you can't play alone mm-hmm. like the thing about a sport is that you can't play alone should i read the inner game of tennis what is that? That's the book that he said is the recommended book for competitive melee. Players. Oh, 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 okay, yes. Um, yeah, I just realized that the, uh, Bjorn Borg is wearing a tennis shirt in this match that we're watching that looks kind of like the cup with the um, like the fuck Jerry cup. <laughs> yes, uh, with the kind of swishes oh, yeah, yeah. on it. Oh, the '90s were so fun. Yes, we just had, we just had a better sense of humor about everything because we weren't com- taking L's every goddamn day. <laughs> Uh, I also like that Agassi is drink, drinking out of a little paper water cup in this. Of co- uh, that says Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola on it. Instead of today, every uh, like in the modern clips, everybody's drinking some uh, unidentifiable pink liquid that's probably like supercharged with electrolytes out yeah. of an Evian bottle. Actually, spe- speaking of that, I I saw a tweet recently that I, people were like, "Oh no, is it no, is it TikTok?" They're like, "Do you know what pre-workout is?" Yes. Like apparently pre-workout has a lot of like caffeine in it and like energy stuff. I yes. I want to try it. <laughs> you should do it before you go on a workout. Yeah, I'm like, wait a second. The idea that you like juice before like you exercise, I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. I would love to not feel like I'm dying every time I go for a <laughs> yeah. run. Anyway, something yeah, something to sucks. consider. All right, do you want to do yours? Yes, I had someone reach out to me um, and say that last week we talked about my uh, college theory of sports, which is that things are uh, sports, games, tests, and races. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've simplified it a little bit, uh, which is just two categories, contests 
in games. Uh, they say contests are sports where someone is trying to be the best at an activity. Like cheerleading, where a judge determines who has the best routine, or racing, where someone is trying to be the fastest. Games are sports where two or more opposing sides are trying to win based on some kind of point system earned from the rules and not a judge. So like tennis, basketball, chess, etc. Uh, I, th- I think this is a good simplification of my theory where it's basically judgment versus points, right? Either there's a guy being like, you mm-hmm. did this good, uh, or you um, or you got the most. But I do think there's there's somewhere in there for races, I think, still, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I guess, ra- races is like who's going to be the fastest, but a judge doesn't decide, a finish line decides. Somebody also brought up the combative games, like boxing and wrestling to me. Oh, what what would that category be? I don't know. Um, hmm, game. Game is te- is boxing just tennis? Oh, he just slipped real bad on the grass. Uh, is boxing just tennis? But instead of hitting each other, you hit a ball. Yeah, I think that's. I right. don't know. <laughs> but I mean, boxing and tennis are basically the same. Mental thing. boxing, C- categorically. Yeah, I don't know. Much much to consider. Yeah, much to consider. Uh, games and matches. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the sport I would most like to play. Honestly, I would like I would like to do the tennis where you hit it against the wall. I guess that would be squash. Yes. I think I could have some fun with that. Squash is supposed to be it kind of really like a, intense. It's like a fancy guy. Is aren't you supposed to like play squash with your boss? What's the and, difference between squash and racquetball? Yeah, if, in the 80s you would like play squash with your boss and like you get your weird and, like uh, uh eccentricities of your working relationship out yeah, on the squash at the, court. At the New York Sports Club. Oh, this is New York Sports Club. I don't know. <laughs> Seems, seems nice uh, or not seems and i do not mean this derogatorily me just simply descriptively gay <laughs> fellas is it is it gay to hit a ball is it gay to play squash with your boss <laughs> i would argue yes a little a little it's, it's gay to do anything with your boss though. yes no <laughs> what am i saying that doesn't mean anything Anyway, uh, any anything else from from tennis, uh, tennis or from sports, life? The world of the world of oh, e-sports. I've started my campaign to get us to the oh, US yes, Open. Oh yes, yes, yes. This is another thing to mention. Molly uh, is is trying to get a sponsorship to get sent to the US Open. I just want. I'm not. I'm not trying to be greedy. I'm just. I've been. We've been grinding at this podcast. At, we've for, been doing tennis related content for coming up on two years. Uh, for two for two years, and I. Uh, I'm. I just want to finesse something in my life. Like I just want. I d- it doesn't have to be fancy. Tickets to like the the lowest round, like the qualifying round, are like sixty dollars or something. I don't want to pay it. I want someone else to pay it for me. So I've been tweeting at brands that are sponsors of the U.S. Open. I think my next step might be to just find some like sketchier brands <laughs> to just like buy me a ticket and then I'll mention them. Uh, if anyone has any ideas, I'm really bad. This is like the stuff that I'm really bad at. I so. think you can help by just boosting Molly's tweets uh when she tweets at brands saying mm-hmm. hey gray goose sponsor us to go to the uh, u.s open we do a podcast about alcohol and tennis <laughs> yeah uh yeah obviously the portrayal of alcohol is not necessarily the oh, best look, but at least I, we do depends talk about if anybody it. on the gray goose social media team has read infinite jest yes that's true uh no i uh uh yeah i'm M- miss molly mary on twitter you can follow me and follow my journey to try to get some some finessed tickets to the u.s open yeah. i want to go to the open we need to cover it 
We need to cover it. That's the thing. I looked up the media pass, so don't don't tell me to do that because I already did. And first of all, it's already closed. Uh, <laughs> it, this shit happens at the end of August, and the media uh, press credential things are already closed. And then they are very clear that you need to be assigned to cover tennis by a news gathering organization. They don't want you to go if you're writing a little book about it. They don't want you to go if you're doing some kind of like pop culture analysis of the way Federer's hair looks. They want you to go if you are trying to find out who scored how many points for. Or some kind of news organization. The U.S. Open organization is very unfair to very unfair to independent journalists who are just trying to get the story. Companies. Yes. How are we supposed to give you, the listeners, yes. the correct view of what professional tennis is actually like? The fair and balanced. The show. Uh, a depiction of of talent of tennis. Who can say? Anyway, yes. uh, wish me the luck. Li- it's 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 completely controlled and operated by the line news media, the line fake news media. Uh, they have their iron grip on the throat of tennis coverage, and we are just trying to break through. Didn't a, um, a sunglasses company want to reach out to you uh, offering some kind of free sunglasses? Yes. Didn't I, we get back in touch and be like, can you give us uh, a pair tickets? of sunglasses and, and tickets to the and U.S. And we will Open. wear the sunglasses to the U.S. Open and take pictures. I think I'm going to get a little, a little USB uh, battery-powered uh, microphone for secret podcast recording at various places. You can't say that on this podcast because that's not something that's allowed at the U.S. Open. No photo, video, or audio recordings of the game shall be recorded Well, not for the there. U.S. Open. Okay, just for my general. secret plan to go to uh, Disney World with the Chapos and record a Chapo episode live at Disney World. Watch, watch this space. Watch this space. All right, bye. Bye.